Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Logic Podcast. Two guys with no credentials. Reviewing Rolling Stone 500. Greatest album. Welcome back, friends. Today, we're discussing album number 54, which is Star Time by James Brown. Please, 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 please. Yeah, good to be back. Good to be talking about James Brown again. Yeah. Uh, an artist that was I was pretty ignorant of until we reviewed a live album on the previous list. We'll talk maybe a bit about that. Uh, a little later um, and now we have another compilation album uh, Ben should I just start with some details before we get right into it well yeah I mean it, it is a compilation I'm glad you said that um, The maybe we'll get into this in the details but uh, from what I understand uh, the folks who put this compilation together have won some awards so I almost feel okay. like saying like up front instead of saying um, today we're reviewing James Brown's Star Time we should almost say like we're we're reviewing uh, the co- the collaborators who put this box set together. Cliff White and <laughs> Harry Weininger, um, they're the guys who put all the time and effort into creating this. So, okay, in some sense, we're uh, recording. We're we're assessing their work today as we go through a, a, a box set of this size. But yeah, I think we'll get into some of those uh, little side details as we go through the details. No, that's a good point, and we'll uh, we'll do that uh, after we do the details. Details, 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 details. So this box set, as we mentioned, was released May seventh, nineteen ninety one. Is that prime box set time? Early nineties? Uh, I would say, like, <laughs> absolutely. I think we talked about this. That um, you know, the people who grew up with this music had it on vinyl and it would have had a huge collection and some of the songs with er, as we will discuss with early artists weren't on LPs mm. a lot of the artists in the even in the early 60s but certainly any time before that a lot of their music was on singles on 7 inch and even if you go way back on uh, before 33 and a third would have been on 78 old 78 78 RPM uh, shellac plates uh-huh. <laughs> before before <laughs> Uh, polymer vinyl as we know it was created so um, I think the certainly somebody in marketing saw with CDs the amount of music you could put on it and you could have a little box set with hours and hours of all your artists favorite music people probably didn't also want to convert all of their records or rebuy them in CD form so I think box set was appealing to that group of people who were now in their 40s and 50s and 60s and also box sets were very expensive (laughs) so 
those are the people who are going to be able to afford it. It wasn't us in the early 90s who were like, had our first job. We didn't want to. I saw some box sets and I was like, oh, it'd be great. I'm getting into this artist. It'd be great to have all their music. But I don't want to spend $60, $80 on a box yeah. set right now. Um, yeah. I, I could buy four, five, six CDs for that. There's a really neat article um, that was put out actually this year, uh, May of this year, um, in essentially an anniversary 30 years uh after this box set came out that talks about the context in the early 90s apparently robert johnson's uh complete recordings had come out in 1990 and um it it went 90, gold yeah. within a yeah. few months and that that was the light bulb mm-hmm. moment for the industry to say like wow we can repackage people's music right in robert johnson's case that guy had never really sold tons of music because a, he was kind no. of obscure. He was, um, and, and B, he didn't produce music during the album era. But that complete no. recordings box kind of told the industry, "Hey, we can make a ton of money here." Um, so you get other things like uh, Dylan's bootleg series, uh, and in that same era, and then this comes out and uh, kind of like launches people back into his career and reminds them just of how great he was. Uh, it was also apparently way cheaper to make a CD box set than, like you said, to stamp out a bunch of vinyl. Oh, yeah. Um, or even cassettes, I'm guessing, uh, just from a production side of things. So, and Materials, you know, so, yeah. so com- compact disc, but so much yep. less material. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. No, that. thanks for bringing that up. And that's a really good point as we, it's good that we understand the context of this release. Um, yeah. And, and, and the context of the era, because... We still see them, but they're less common because you could just go on uh, Apple, iTunes Store, or Spotify, or whatever, listen to a whole catalog for free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you don't need the physical thing, why would you drop, you know, anywhere from fifty to one hundred twenty bucks on on something physical, which is bittersweet? But anyways, yep. um, so we usually like to talk about authorship, but this is a, just a staggering amount of music, I believe. Uh, Oh, 71 tracks I think <laughs> um, James Brown mo- wrote the majority of these songs and he had he had writing partners but when I look through at every single song I see that he's the primary songwriter on most of them so he oh, sometimes you have um, like Elvis and you have other very famous performers who really are just performers they don't write James Brown did both um, and he was just as his nickname very early on and throughout his career says the hardest working man in show business, he, he earned that title. Um, not only from his, the way he performed, <laughs> how often he performed, um, the amount of music he released and also wrote most of it. So he was definitely, uh, if not the hardest working man in show business, definitely one of the most hardest working people. Um, and you see that in this large amount of music, uh, it charted, Number 89, as we mentioned, these don't always, like the Robert Johnson, yes, but they don't always chart well because they're selling less, but they're more money, but they also cost way less on average per disc to produce. So this went number 89 on the US R&B charts. It didn't make the the top 200 or whatever. Um, The other thing to remember is that for sales, it's per disc. So one vinyl or one 
disc. So this had four discs. So every time somebody bought a box set, that counts as four. (laughs) (laughs) So this went to gold, which is uh, 500,000 units. But remember, that's 500,000 discs. So that's only 125,000 sets actually sold. Which is still, I mean, it's still a disc as a disc, I guess. But, but it skews the numbers if you don't know how many discs are in the box set. Right. <laughs> because right. every time somebody bought one, that counts as four um, <laughs> towards the certification. So certified gold in the U.S., which is 500,000 discs, but only 125 sets. 125,000. And it, it would cost way less to produce four CDs in a box set, I'm guessing, than four individual separate CD releases, right? Yeah, you would think so. Just, just, you know, like anything you do in bulk costs less. So they're they're making, I'm guessing they're making a lot of money. Um, A couple notes here. We said it's a four CD box set. Um, uh, It spans almost his whole career, starting in 1956 with his first hit record, which was Please, 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 and ending with Unity... Uh, which was a 1984 collaboration with Africa Bambata, who was another artist that he collaborated with. So I think that's some of the last or more recent, most recent music on this. So spanning about 30 years, of course, he continued to perform right up until uh, his passing in the late first decade of the 2000s, I think. I can't remember exactly when he passed. I want to say around 2008 or 2010, something like that. Uh, but this covers, of course, that era until the 80s. 2006? Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow. Jeez, time flies. Um, uh, this, uh, you mentioned awards. So this was interesting to me. This set won the 1991 Grammy Award for Best Album Notes. Ben, <laughs> I didn't even know that was an award. Is that <laughs> is that a ridiculous award? I think it still exists. Wow. I think it's still an award. I looked it up briefly and like, I didn't know it was an award and I haven't really researched the notes for this. I imagine there was, um, you know, a short essay or a preamble from the people who did them. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a discography in there. Sometimes there's a lot of photos, you know, a little booklet. Some of the big box sets have, you know, artwork and posters and stickers and, you know, guitar picks and other things in them. But this won a Grammy. I, I if that Grammy still exists, I can't imagine it being as relevant today <laughs> because we don't really do box sets anymore, as we that's, mentioned. But any, I anyways, think won the, the Grammy. Um, yeah, it feels silly now in this era. Um, but I, I, you know, I think we probably both still have memories of like opening a jewel case and the two paths. The one of like oh my goodness, this has nothing in it. Like, you open it up and it's got, like, copyright info and that's it. And you're, like, so disappointed that there isn't something to look at while you're listening to music. And on the other end of the spectrum, like, the the thicker booklets that almost need, like, extra space to squeeze into the jewel case because there's just so much content, extra pictures, extra uh, uh, stories about how the music was created. And there is definitely a skill in making making those things really good. Um, Yeah. I... I think, uh, you know, as I've gotten, as we've both gotten into collecting vinyl, you know, mm-hmm. the limited real estate of a, of a CD jewel case certainly changes what's even possible. Um, right. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think there is a skill to, 
to liner notes. And in this case, uh, they didn't just have a producer um, throw something randomly together, but these were uh, historians, people from the industry, people who worked with him, uh, really trying to tell the story of who James Brown is and why he needed a box set like this. So in this case, like, I don't know, maybe there's no better time to award a Grammy like that than to a project like this uh, hmm. <laughs> because of its specific hmm. kind of how it was created, I guess. Yeah, and while you were going through that, I just looked it up. This this award is still active today. <laughs> There's still people uh, creating box sets, or, or not. I guess it's not just box sets. Any any album note uh, started in '64 was the first time it was given out. And a side note: from '73 to '76, uh, there was a second award, Best Album Notes Classical. <laughs> Wow. So they felt they, they they had to do a sec a separate one. So I don't know, kind of funny. But anyways, yeah, that's uh, box sets usually don't get any awards. Like uh, yeah. you know, most of them they're not they're not qualified for. Or they don't they don't they wouldn't be eligible for. Uh, and like other greatest hits and stuff, you know. So yeah, this is probably one of the rare. But I think, especially in the 90s, probably a lot of these awards, and if I go back to that, probably would have been given to box sets because they would have had the most elaborate... Yeah, packaging. um, Packaging, right? Yep. And sometimes thrown together, um, was it the Ray Charles Mm. box set that we we looked at somewhat in depth and it looked like, like each CD almost had a different look? It didn't even look like they belonged in the same set. It looked kind of awkwardly, quickly thrown together. So, yeah, there's a way to do it, to have a lot of packaging, robust packaging, and do it poorly, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just the the um, the art choices, design choices of that one seemed strange. Yeah, yep. Um, but, yeah, as I'm looking through, a lot of these are, especially in the 90s, are, are compilation albums. Uh, the complete recordings, you know, the full work of the anthology of, you yeah. know, actually yeah. right into the 2010s. Yeah. Uh, that's what it is, which makes sense. Anyways, enough of that. With the packaging, we should talk about what we always talk about, which is the album artwork, which would have been such a small part of this whole package. But we've talked, I always imagine on a box set with someone's complete works or an anthology, wouldn't you want that person to be front and center? <laughs> you know, we looked at that with with the Chuck Berry one, with the um, the Ray Charles one was weird. Robert Johnson was, I mean, probably one of the only photos exist of him. The Muddy Waters one, and I think Al Green greatest hits were a little better, but some of them are strange. But this is yeah. like red background, um, and then a yellow square. It's not even a square. It's more of a polygon. Again, 90s weird. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on, a, on a weird angle with his name cut out in block capitals, James Brown. A cut out so that they're red, but it's on a yellow background. And then underneath in quite small letters, comparatively, Star Time. Yeah. Uh, which wouldn't mean anything to anyone in terms of saying what this is. But Star Time was something that... Uh, I don't know if it was a song or an album, but I know that when we listened to his live recording from the 60s, um, that's how they introduced his act. Like, are you ready for Star Time? Yep. That was kind of his, yep. he was known 
that was his show, right? Yeah. So that would have great significance to the people who knew his music um, and is, is a good name. But, it, you know, you, sometimes it says the complete recordings or anthology, so you know what it is, doesn't say that. And then in, in just uh, black, like almost a silhouette, is him in one of his classic poses holding the microphone stand bent over, singing into it. But it's so small. Like, if you didn't know who James was and, and his, his way of performing, like, you wouldn't even know it's him. I don't get it, man. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I would want his face, I would want his face, like, taking up the whole thing, you know, screaming one of, with his, I don't know, with his, one of his signature moves. Anyways. So I was curious um, about how this box set actually looked. So I did a Google image search for your Oh, I probably should have done that, right? <laughs> and what comes up is that, so this was a four disc set. Each of the discs had its own jewel case with the image that you just described on it. But the the actual thing was tall. Um, looks like like two jewel cases tall, and um, it oh. it then changes the proportion. Oh. So James is actually like taking up the bottom half of the box set. I like that better. I just looked at that. It looks way more proportional and um, does sort of like raise him to more prominence. Um, yes, but you're right. The interior, the the jewel cases with that box set really like just blow up his name and kind of tuck him in the corner. Uh, so the distinction's important. You would have, if you were browsing for this in the store, you would have seen the uh, the bigger image of him. Uh, right. But yeah, it and, is a it is a funny thing. That's obviously the image I pulled was was from one of the individual jewel cases. Right. Um, right. And as I'm looking, I should I you know what I meant to and I totally forgot. So I'm glad you did it. <laughs> but yeah, it's more like a, a yeah, like a thin box, almost like the, a box that you would have a really nice journal or notebook in that size, uh, kind of tall and narrow. Um, and then it's got all four in there. Yeah, I like that. That one's a lot better because it has him taking up like half, like the bottom half, and that. That a younger photo of him too, you know, him in yeah. his early prime. Yep. Um, okay, I, I take back some of the some of the <laughs> uh, some of the venom I was spewing about that. Well, but um, I mean, what it gets at for me is the the like lack of continuity for a box set too, right? Like that we don't even in seeing the Wikipedia image of the album cover, we have no sense of like how that was used or what shape it was, given that it was a box set. Because right. they are all kinds of different shapes, and we've talked before. Oh, yeah. They're often the thing behind the counter, right? Like uh, some yeah, of them were up, even up like on a shelf. Some of them were even LP sized, like like giant mm -hmm. record sized boxes, and then the CDs yeah. would be arranged in a different way inside. But um, we we have the entire Friends series uh, in a box set that's doesn't really look like any dvd case at all it's like <laughs> i don't know I, I don't know what you're supposed to do with these odd shaped things and we've always struggled to know where it doesn't fit on a dvd shelf so where in our house should we have this this right. monster box and uh, huh. yeah I, I don't know it it uh it's funny it's a funny little subgenre. the packaging of these of these things uh, but could win you a grammy yep yep Right. Yeah. if done well if done well if done yeah. well yeah okay well that's um so that that's the i guess we can't just do album cover for these box sets we have to go a little deeper than normal <laughs> um <laughs> do you want me to do you want me to list all the tracks ben yeah I there's think, only 71 um, 
71, and we could go track by track as we move through this review, too, probably. Oh, so. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if I added everything up right from the list I have, 71, I think it's well over four hours of music like yeah i think 445 in the um yeah in the yep. spotify playlist so yeah yeah so like enough enough james brown music for like a good evening party uh <laughs> without without yeah. repeating um yeah. you know i don't know how you want to tackle it um i assume that uh neither of us have listened to it before no um have you? No, you haven't. Um, That's a joke. I was, was going to make a joke that it was like heavy rotation <laughs> throughout my life. But no, um, I, I think it is important here as we get into the tracks to remind ourselves again of the era. And obviously we've talked about this already even in this episode. But um, this article from Pitchfork that I referenced uh, asked the reader to remember a time when you didn't have all the b-sides from your favorite artist mm-hmm. too so yeah mm-hmm. the the case that they um that they build was specific to the track papa's got a brand new bag so on on disc one if you're on the you know the the track listing for this album this massive massive project um, you can see that disc one contains a lot of uh, uh, unreleased stuff. And at the very right. the very end of it, the final track is Papa's Got a Brand New Bag Parts 1, 2, and 3. So the okay. uh, co- collaborators were going through old recordings and they saw something marked Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. They pressed play and were like, this can't be right. It must have been mislabeled. It sounds completely different. Well, it was three different takes, uh, three different oh, okay. attempts at a different sound for this one song that had. Mm. Uh, and so every time they got to the next one, they were like, oh, my goodness, he did it this way this time. I can't believe that. And so like uh, for the early 90s, when when sampling music in, in lots of different spaces was really taking off, getting a chance to really see some of the takes that an artist had had was just like like finding gold like striking gold um james brown's music had already been sampled in lots of different ways but suddenly there was like this treasure trove of all this additional music that people didn't even know existed and i think about um this moment that we're in coldplay has an album that comes out uh uh, i guess it depends on when this album when this episode actually comes out The, the new coldplay album might be out already by the time you hear this but um, as we're recording today, uh, it's not out, uh, and yet they've already released several singles. And I think for each single that they've put out, they've put out like three other renditions, an acoustic version, a techno remix, uh, a, a sort of like remix with someone else. And, uh, you know, as fans, it's like drinking from a fire hose. We get all this content, um, all done digitally. I may never buy the album and yet I'm going to hear like, you know, several renditions of certain uh, big tracks. Uh, when this music was coming out, the studios were the only ones that got this sort of behind the curtain look at the music. And so no one ever knew that there were three different versions of Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. And um, and this box set kind of opened up that window into the fact that there was something else there. So 
Yeah, it, it, I think that was helpful for me in, in reminding myself. Yeah. Um, we didn't always live in an era where artists just like vomited all the music they were creating in the studio all at once out there for the masses to consume. Um, yeah. A lot of it was kept hidden away for, for decades sometimes. Yeah, and the sheer amount of music that was created, uh, we've already talked about some albums that were created and we have you know 15 tracks and they did like a hundred uh, like almost complete right <laughs> uh, i can't remember which i can't remember which one if it was if it was uh okay computer or there was a there was i don't know some that we've done where there's just tons and tons of tracks uh i think there's a misnomer song that we think people go into the studio they know exactly what they want on the album they know what 15 tracks uh, they go and they do them and then they leave. That's not really what happens. And a lot of times they go in with some ideas <laughs> and then they start writing in the studio. And sometimes, uh, you know, they come up with, yeah, maybe 20, 30, 40 tracks and go, okay, here's our best 12 or 15. Let's do those. So that was really good. Let's, let's record another demo of that. Yeah. Clean it up a bit yeah. and we'll save it. And it just, and it just, you know, or uh, I think Prince, was one who there are people in the industry who say that there are mountains of music yeah. of his that's never been released and i think yep. there's many many artists like that certainly at the pace that bands like the beatles and the beach boys and the stones and many others were creating music in the 60s and early 70s uh it would be naive to think that the only music they created are, is the music that was released to us mm -hmm. Uh, so anyways, I think, uh, yes, I like the way that this reveals some of that and some of the alternate takes. Uh, true fans will really enjoy that. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Prince. Uh, the legend has it that he walked through the studio while they were unearthing some of this old unreleased music. And oh. he said, you're not going to put that all on there, are you? And they said, yeah, yeah, we, we've got James's permission. And he said, well, after I die, that's never going to happen. Like he understood sort of the the, the mechanics oh. of the machine and sort of thought like, hold it in your pocket, like save that for box set number two. Um, <laughs> uh, almost as if you're giving away too much there when you saw that mm, that package. Interesting. <laughs> I think like that's another example of how the system has changed over time and, right. and the control that so I want or have. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I like that. I guess. Uh, for me, in terms of music, I mean, there was, number one, so much, so much music. <laughs> um, and obviously this was something, never anything I was able to listen to in one shot, but I tried to go through it as many times as I could. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was some that was familiar because we went through that uh, Live at the Apollo recording, which I think was 64. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff before that time... Um, and that was certainly the earlier soul, and we're just starting to hear a little bit of the funk stuff. Uh, to me, once you get into the mid-60s and into the 70s, it, a lot of it, to my ear, again, ignorant of really the genre and his music, a lot sounded very similar. But you've got that very, that guitar, kind of a very rhythmic guitar, funk guitar yep. with a lot of space in between. You know, like just very... Uh, bright and then of course you get the vocals and a strong rhythm section and tons of horns whereas the earlier stuff was a lot more not ballady but um 
a, a little more blended and it wasn't just the guitar there was guitar but mm-hmm. it wasn't just kind of the backbone of it in the way that that uh that funk stuff you know when i think of james brown certainly before we listened to that other album it was uh i feel good yeah you know i got you of course yeah. um papa's got a brand new bag uh uh, get on up, um, like Sex Machine, you know, stuff like that. That, and of course, there's way more than just that. But that was kind of what I thought of when I thought of James Brown. Mm-hmm. Of course, his career is is much more than that. Um, and so this is a great look at, you know, all that stuff. Um, I I don't know really how else to tackle it. What kind of what what were the, what were some of your takeaways or things that that jumped out to you? So one of the things I do when I'm at a loss for how to tackle something that I know very little about is to go and check <laughs> out um, the RS500 project, um, that incredible oh, series I... of essays. Um, uh, Brad Efford uh, collaborated and put together. Um, the mm-hmm. one for start time idea. Uh, is not done by Brad. It's a friend of his um, named Corey Hensel. Uh, and w- I thought it was really fascinating because... Corey starts out saying essentially what I was feeling, like I am in no way qualified to review James Brown, Um, but then walks through (laughs) their ideas for how to do it. And the first one was to reserve 71 days and to do track by track, just like put it on repeat and each day be a different track and (laughs) really give it the intensity and time that it requires. And uh, a few days in, they realized that's a terrible idea. Um, (laughs) um, A, uh, these songs are not meant to be like analyzed that deeply. There's often not much more to the song than what the song is actually telling. It's not, it's not cryptic. It's not, you know, it doesn't require you to like find the story behind the story. The other thing that they decided to do is to just like, put it on as background music and just like try and get the vibe throughout the entire thing. But it, there's almost too much to do that, they said. And and the vibe changes throughout time. And that was so, and that was my method. That was my method. Just me too. have it me on. Too. <laughs> so then what they they wind up doing is saying like the the most uh, effective way is probably somewhere in the middle. You can't get too under the microscope and you can't get too zoomed out. Um, you do need to sort of think through the spirit of James Brown and who he was, uh, both the godfather of soul, but also this flawed individual who has, you know, strike mm. strikes against him for sure for um, uh, some of the actions in his life and, and some right. of the yeah. poor ways that he treated people. Um, mm. But uh, you can also just kind of lose yourself in a given track. And, uh, and so they kind of arrive at that point in the end, like, uh, you know, hold up all these different elements of who he is, but also just don't feel uh, any shame in just letting his music play proudly. Whatever song you're feeling at that given day or given time. And uh, I don't know, I think that kind of struck a chord with me. I, I think, you know, for someone like me who's not well versed in soul music, but knows a little bit about him, I can lose myself in this music. And and be really uh, touched by it in, in in different kinds of ways. Um, so I'll start there and, and saying, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is imperfect, what we're trying to do uh, in tackling 71 songs that cover almost five hours worth of time. <laughs> but there's still something to glean here and, and something of value. 
absolutely, and and I was trying to separate the amount of music and also the and I don't say this negatively, but sometimes the the repetitive nature of the music, especially when you're listening to so many altogether. Um, yeah. You know, I got the sense sometimes that it sounded very similar, again, to a non-trained ear in this in this music. Um, but also the the greatness, yeah, in so much of it, um, and how yeah. how important it was. The the one thing that I you know you get the early you know uh, love songs and uh, ballads, some of the fun songs you start to move into in the the late 60s more kind of activist um civil rights stuff you know uh yeah for particularly you know like say it loud i'm black and proud which was like such a big deal at the time to um in the as he moved into the mainstream or rather into being exposed to more of a white audience to embrace one's blackness yeah. was still very much not um accepted and not appropriate at the time yep, yep. And was something that I think you might know even more about this than me because of the, the people and the spaces you've worked in so diligently. Um, in some some places, that was career suicide, right? To to promote and embrace your blackness because that's not what the white audience and what the white executives wanted. Yep, they wanted music that people enjoyed, but didn't necessarily want to embrace the people who were making the music which yeah. is sad but is the reality of of the history there so to the say it loud on black and proud was such a huge deal um i think for for james brown for music and for the black community at large um and if i'm speaking out of turn uh, i apologize but i think i think that to me when i see it on the track list and hear it to me is a, a really important piece of 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 what he did uh for music in general yeah yeah and i think this sort of like uh umbrella covering his entire career gives us a some perspective into who he thought he was too um i mm. was i was probably most surprised by the spoken word tracks where okay yeah you know the band's just kind of like laying down a, a slow groove and he's kind of preaching um right i think in one of them he even says he thought he was going to be a preacher and then sort of music took over. Um, right. But I could see that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he still has this like very um, prophetic kind of voice, even when he is singing to like call people to war justice or just to, to some deeper truth that he believes in. Um, and, and he's a poet, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he, even when his songs sound somewhat simple on the surface, uh, there's something compelling that, that makes you want to think about a line or a phrase or uh, an idea that he that he draws his listeners to, and um, yeah, it's 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 really fascinating. I I, I mean, I think we'd be uh, uh, we'd be remiss if we don't remember our conversation with Joe Bowie talking about the swagger and the bravado. Uh, the way he was able to like hold the entire room in the palm of his hand and to really like give them the exact message that he wanted them to hear. Uh, um, 
yeah, it, I, you know, there, there aren't too many artists where I feel like, you know, I, I really probably will never know them because I never got a chance to see them live. But I think he's one of those where I think you can only get so much from the recorded audio. I bet it was just so much. It probably just took him to a whole different level when you saw him in person. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And you hear, especially on that Apollo recording, just the the, the crowd going just nuts. Yeah. And um, uh, Joe Bowie, again, pointed us to a bunch of different things. But one of the things, uh, go on YouTube and look up the Tammy show, T-A-M-I. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Where it was on the West Coast and uh, it, was f- it was a show for youth. Um, it's Tammy is an acronym for something teen American music something I think anyways the headliners were the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. and really it was like that was a big deal they bring them over it was I think just after the Apollo recordings might have been around 65 not sure um, they brought them over and James Brown was the runner up to the Stones and they were kind of like they wanted to have an American act and he was pretty hot at the time but a lot of the like i think it was a mixed audience but was more of a white audience um so they weren't sure how well he would do turns out um (laughs) he he blew the stones out of the water yeah uh, not necessarily maliciously or intentionally but they were eating out of the palm of his hand as you said were so surprised and excited and if you watch him his energy start to finish i mean he only plays like three or four songs but it's like he is putting everything he has into his performance physically emotionally it's tremendous the stones are standing backstage and james brown leaves the stage and they kind of look at each other they're like what do we do now (laughs) like we've got to we've got to follow this up and they played a good set but there was they there was nothing they could do to recaptivate the audience after that amazing performance and really i think that that's one moment in time but is a great example of what an electrifying uh presence he was on stage and how he was kind of overshadowing when put next to some of the other very successful i mean the stones were a huge act at that time uh they were a big deal um as they continued to be and he just blew him out of the water in terms of his stage presence and the production uh we talked about that with the the production it wasn't they didn't just there was an act there was from even the the person introducing james brown and you hear it on another live recording on this box set from the 70s where they come out and the person introduces james brown and introduces all the singles Introducing, ladies and gentlemen, the young man has had over 35 soul classics. Among these classics are tunes that will never die. Tunes like Try Me, Out of Sight, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. I feel good, like a sex machine, because you're super bad. Get up, get into it, and get involved, because you got so Of power. such hits as Think, Please, 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 and he goes through them, and each time there's an orchestra hit going up in a semitone. Between each name of the song. So by the time they're done listing that, the the crowd is at a fever pitch <laughs> because they're being reminded of all the great songs they're going to hear. Oh my God! And then he comes out and they just lose their mind. So you, there's this theatrics and then he had theatrics within the songs. You know, we all know the, the cape around, you know, he's getting emotional, talk, uh, singing about 
the woman in the song and he's falling to his knees and one of his background singers puts a cape around him to console him and then he gets up again and throws it off and it's just this this almost uh, show this theatrics that he's doing plus the dancing i mean it was a complete package in ways that i don't think other acts were doing at the time even some of the biggest acts like the beatles and the stones they didn't really have a stage show like now that's all shows are is, is a huge spectacle with tons of like like just million multi-million dollar shows i'm just talking about one performance the millions and millions of dollars from the equipment to visuals to video to massive you know you have taylor swift with a massive snake and the a big robot on the muse and all this other stuff it didn't have that it was just them it was just james brown being james brown and that was enough to make people lose their mind um and that's just something so exciting and i think you're right ben as much as this music is amazing to listen to and gives us a taste of his whole career and what he was about I think people would say to see him live was truly to understand and experience James Brown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Certainly in his in his heyday, I'd say right into the 80s, we talked to Joe Bowie about uh, he, he opened him and his band Defunct opened for him in New York in the late 80s. James Brown having some difficulty in his personal life, in his business life, in his financial life, being a little more uh, maybe withdrawn, um, kind of watching defunct open you know from from kind of the backstage yeah, yeah. <laughs> observing and joe Bowie thinking that oh man we just crushed it james brown coming out and absolutely destroying them with an amazing performance that they had to just bow down and say you know <laughs> you're the man even later on in his career through all those difficulties still knew everything that needed to be known about having a, an exceptional live show um and just that's what happens when you have a master there uh, just can just pull it off effortlessly yeah. so yeah. anyways i uh, got on a bit of a tangent but oh, but i, I like think that. that that's such a and with him uh, i know i i i was down on it a bit but him in that pose on the cover of the box set like that's to me encapsulate who james was with his his live performance um yeah. was such a huge part of it should we just move right into our favorite tracks I, I, I think so. I think, okay. um, you know, I think we've talked in very general terms, which is kind of, you kind of have to. <laughs> a couple albums ago, we, we talked about David Bowie's Station to Station, and we had to pick two <laughs> two tracks out of six total. <laughs> so between the two of us, we picked a third of the music. So now we have to pick two tracks out of a possible um, 71. 71. <laughs> so uh, I don't know, Ben, do you want to... <laughs> Right, who's going first? Um, do you have one? In, do you have one in mind? I, you know what? I should check our old playlist. But the song that jumps out to me, which I think was on Live at the Apollo, is "I'll Go Crazy." I really like that one. It's a short yeah. one. Um, yeah, the other one from later in his career that I really like is "Cold Sweat." But man, it oh, is yeah. seven and a half minutes long, and usually I say that's far too long for a track. But it just keeps going, and you can just see oh, that's him. Good. I'm imagining getting sweatier and sweatier as he's performing that song. Uh, uh, doesn't seem to lose any momentum or passion or, or emotion as he goes, but those are the two that stand out to me. Um, uh, what about you when you think about this playlist? How does it, what stands out? 
I think the songs that I'm gravitating to are some of the ones I'm familiar with, which is yeah. maybe says more about how unfamiliar I am with his whole catalog and how I yeah. probably, you know, we, we don't spend weeks and weeks and weeks with every album, but I wish I had a little more time with this one, but that's okay. Um, but I think to the ones that I'm familiar with and enjoy is the ones kind of from that late, um, late 60s yeah. era. Or maybe mid to late 60s. Um, uh, actually, as I'm looking at, probably the mid 60s. Kind of that Apollo yeah. uh, recording, I think, was 63 or 64. So, like, stuff like right after that. I love that stuff, too. But just right after that, as he starts moving towards the more funk stuff, funky stuff. Um, Out of Sight, I love. Um, it's a man's, man's, man's world. <laughs> uh I really like I like the twist in that how I listen to it I go oh that's depressing but it, you know it's a man's world but it'd be nothing without a woman um, kind of like that um, obviously I got you I feel good um, I think uh, Papa's got a brand new bag I think okay. that's mine um, classic track uh, I love the guitar because uh, it's just all this space Papa's yeah. got a brand new bag. That's just James. And then it breaks a pause. You know, it's just these showcasing the instruments and, yeah. and just, just so great. Um, I also love, uh, uh, get up, get on up. And I love, I love how you hear his voice starting to change. Yep. Like you hear much like the, the young stuff. Yeah. A little more yeah. raspy and, and, <laughs> And as you listen through, you hear like some of the high notes and the screams, like just this ear piercing, ear piercing wails where his voice almost sounds like his, his larynx is going to just explode to sh little pieces. <laughs> um, you hear that in the young, in the younger stuff and in the mid 60s stuff. And even as you get to the early 70s, um, you hear, the, get on up, you know, this yep. more raspy. Yep. And I think of the James Brown stuff that we were hearing as kids was some of that older stuff and if there were any any live performances that were being broadcasted at that time in the 80s and 90s that's the james brown voice we were hearing yep um yep. i didn't know about the early 60s stuff until we listened to that apollo recording right. and talked to joe Bowie. so i wasn't kind of familiar with the sound of his younger voice um which is tremendous a little more clear but you get this great uh timbre of the voice mm -hmm. uh so i think Again, honorable mention to some of those. Get up, uh, get up. I love, love it, love it. But I think I'm gonna go with Papa's got a brand new bag. That's good me. choice. What did you, what did you end up picking? I, oh, you haven't picked so it. So I went back through our list okay. and realized I, I chose. Uh, I'll go crazy when we did <laughs> live at the oh, okay. Apollo. So I'm not gonna pick that one. And while it yeah. was sort of flipping back around, I clicked on. Um, I got the feeling, which is a shorter song, but really does capture a lot of what I think of when I think of James Brown. It may be a little bit more cliche than some of the other ones we've talked about, but I think I'm going to go with I Got the Feeling, even though I didn't mention that okay. one earlier. I really like that one, too. And at uh, two minutes, 38 seconds, it fits my uh, ideal song length a little bit better than my <laughs> seven and a half minute uh, uh, choice from earlier. It's not too short, Ben? No. Um, no. It's not no, too short I don't mind you? if stuff's too no. short. No. <laughs> the punk, punk okay. days uh, holding over, maybe. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> 
Okay, well, that's good. We got our songs. Um, you know, we'll keep moving on here. Uh, this is a this is a tricky question because it's a box set. Uh, is the album still relevant? And I guess when we ask that question here, we sort of have to ask: Is his whole catalog of music relevant? Um, <laughs> because it's pretty much everything. But uh, and we're sort of also asking the question: Are box sets still relevant? So I, I don't know. There's a bunch of things. Do you uh, do you want to go first on that, Ben? I guess I would say the the article that I read that talked about how overjoyed you know um, DJs and producers were to get this unreleased material in their hands because it meant that there were more things they could sample from James Brown makes me think that there's probably still some hunger especially in um, rap and hip hop spaces that continue to sample from older eras uh, for music like this uh, mm-hmm. to be to be used and borrowed from and learned from um, I think it doesn't uh, it doesn't fit a lot of the music that's out there right now. I, I would say I also hear some of him in, in Bruno Mars and artists like that, that, uh, that still have some of that soul and funk and swagger, charisma, attitude. So while his music is definitely set in another era, I, I think his influence is clearly a part of the music absolutely. today. And so I would say still absolutely still relevant. And maybe even more so than some of the other music we've said is relevant as a textbook because of the way it's influenced. But almost, like, I think his sound has carried through time a little better than some other artists from that would have been peers from him in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah, that, uh, similar, similar thoughts there. And that was one of the, I wrote down just a few acts. That was the first one, Bruno Mars, uh, who loves to... In not only in his music but also his videos draw from previous eras of style yeah uh, music and and also fashion style and video style like he'll do a video that'll look just like a you know an r&b soul video from the 70s you know with the same effects and everything and he does that on a bunch of things uh and then he's uh he's collaborated with uh an artist named Anderson Pack to create a group called Silk Sonic, which is really popular right now. And again, very soul sounding, okay. uh, funk soul stuff uh, and is extremely popular. You get YouTube groups, uh, postmodern jukebox loves to do the all covers in stuff. And they've been very popular for years of like, you know, more soul or jazz. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, in that same vein, a group called scary pockets who I've talked about before I'm not sure how popular they are, but they have a lot of view, a lot of videos in the you know several million views range, so they must be somewhat popular. And they do they do covers of popular songs all in a funk style, and and I think that's still very uh, very relevant. And then I've mentioned her before, but Dua Lipa, who's one of the hottest pop acts right now, mm. making huge hits with huge amounts of disco and funk influence that are like at the top of the charts right now so i think this music uh, not only has been massively influential through the 80s through the 90s um another person i wanted to that i was thinking of is um uh beyonce just with maybe not funk but soul for sure yeah, yeah. Uh, an artist who still continues to be influential today um i think that definitely 
uh, music goes in cycles and, and people, you know, will constantly be going back to what was, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago and just keep recycling sounds and ideas and making it new and fresh. And I think we're cycling through this right now again. I think we did a bit in the early 90s. Um, and I maybe because all those box sets were coming out <laughs> and people were getting back into it. Uh, but I think we're going through it again. So, yeah, I think uh, the format of the box set, maybe not so relevant anymore right? Uh, with the digital era. Uh, but the music contained here and certainly his music yeah very relevant right now for sure absolutely I'm guessing our answer for whether this position was sound is going to feel very similar to the relevancy question because no Uh, one would ever say James Brown isn't worthy of being uh, held up with the greats right but in this format that you know maybe this is just bias that only the two of us have but Box sets to me don't belong on a list like this. With we've we've said albums. that you've said that many times. <laughs> yeah, we've said that before. Uh, we, I don't like we don't like the idea that the there seems to be way less creative control from the artist when it comes to box sets. Um, however, uh, so I will say first of all, yes, I do agree with that. Number one, number two, um, I think box sets. I think it's less likely that people voted for box sets and compilation, like greatest hits albums, as this is an album that influenced me rather than, well, here's an artist that really influenced me. However, the only thing that I will say in favor of it is what you talked about as the DJs and other people who wouldn't have necessarily heard any of these B-sides being super, super excited to have access to it in a time before streaming and even something like Napster, um, you know, in 1991, this would have been the only opportunity to have all this stuff all together and some of it, period. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, I think, helps uh, kind of as, as putting this in a position to be very important for the music, certainly at the time. If it came out today, not a big deal because we get any of that. Yeah, if you really want it, you can go find it. You can find every song that anybody's ever released. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I still think a little high, like it was previously at seventy nine, and then seventy two, and then seventy five, and the twenty twelve. So, like, I don't mind it there either. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly his music, his catalog, and him just as as an artist and as an individual. Yeah, one one of the one of the greatest ever. So yeah. it's fine. I'll say it's fine. What I kind of I kind of stole the the stage there. What, what do you, anything else to add for you? I guess you kind of. I like that this is held up as the best uh, among box sets, but it to me doesn't need to be on this list. I I don't really want. Okay. I don't want any compilation song. <laughs> I think I'm even getting to the point of saying, like, as much as I love Bob Marley legend, I, I don't think it qualifies. Um, so, hmm. yeah, find me a James Brown album uh, for this list. Not uh, sure. Not a compilation. Well, that's fair. And, and um, certainly a lot of that I agree with. Uh, that would bring us to what albums by James Brown are on yeah. this list. There are three. This is the the highest ranked at 54. Then we'll get to uh, Live at the Apollo 1962. I think earlier I mentioned it was 63 or 64. So 1962 shows how early 
uh, in the 50s he was or in the 60s rather he was uh, very popular so that um album which was released in 63 comes in at number 65 uh down quite a lot from number 25 on the last list and then one more uh, 1970s sex machine which comes in at number 439 that's a, a debut for the list that wasn't on any previous lists um so those are the three and it's an actual album it's an actual album there are <laughs> and here's interesting there are two albums that were dropped um and they're both compilations yeah. <laughs> 1986's uh, In the Jungle Groove, which was 329 on the 2012 list. And another compilation from 1991 Greatest Hits, which I think is the 20, 20 Greatest Hits from James Brown, also from 91. Amazing. Um, which was only on the 2003 list at 414. So they've, I do like, like, so that at that, on that first list, there were three compilation albums. <laughs> You don't need four if you three include, compilation if you albums. Say that a on live one album list. is a, a compilation. There were four. <laughs> well, I don't think it is, but uh, anyways. Um, so yeah, those those are there. Yeah. Um, and also, I the list on Wikipedia of compilation albums for James Brown is larger than the list of studio albums that he released uh, even even before he stopped producing music it's not like they all came after he passed or at the end of his career they were like during his career uh, just a crazy amount in 1991 four compilation albums of james brown's music were, were released either people were just confused or had too much money or his music is just so good that they knew they could make money yeah. off of it yeah. uh, by releasing probably it which is probably the, the case <laughs> um, anyways so we will have two uh two more opportunities to talk about james brown of course we already as we mentioned reviewed the live at the apollo which is coming up in about uh 12 weeks from now uh, we will re-review that one um any closing comments before we move on here ben um no i <clears throat> i think i will say i'm gonna hold this one in my back pocket as a background music uh, option yeah for sure I, I've, oh, I've enjoyed you know i know that if i press play no matter which disc it's on it'll it'll be pretty enjoyable it's just a good thing to have on in the background I agree. I, I think, and my final comment will be that the music is very good, and there's a lot that you can chew into as a, as a music lover. Yeah, yeah. But it's not. But it's also very, very accessible, yeah. and you can have it on in the background, and it doesn't. It doesn't require too much of you. But certainly, there's lots there if you want to apply yourself. So, absolutely, yeah. and I love that. Um, we want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll uh, come back next week. What, what we got coming up uh, for our next review, Ben? I think you might need to take this one, Mike. I think this is an album that you hold in pretty high regard. Uh, oh, yeah. Why don't you tell well, our listeners what I, uh, I will. <laughs> I will. I was, I was kind of trying to pass it off to you so that I wouldn't <laughs> go on a tangent, but we've got uh, one of my very favorite albums of all time. Uh, Pink Floyd's classic legendary album from 1973 The Dark Side of the Moon which I felt was too low last wow. time yeah, and now it's even lower so anyways I'll have a few things to say <laughs> uh, we'll introduce our 
our previous review, which was a lengthy one with our good friend Steve. Um, yep. um, but I don't want to get, we don't need to get into that right now. <laughs> we want to let James Brown have the spotlight for this episode. Yep. Uh, but until then, I hope you continue to be well. I hope you take care of yourselves and those around you, those important to you. And certainly, I hope that you join us again next time right here on the SoundLogic Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.